Good morning and welcome to the 11 o'clock service of the Wesleyan Church here in Houghton. It's good to look out and see lots of familiar faces and lots of faces that I don't know also. It's just comfortable to be here with you on a Sunday morning. Let's uh, participate by standing in the and doing call to worship together. Joyful is the sound we make this morning. Thankful is the song we sing. Hopeful is the prayer on our lips. May the peace and presence of Christ be known among us. Shall we pray together? Lord, as we gather here this morning, we ask that you might uh, calm our racing spirits. Lord, put us in a mind of worshiping you. Thank you that we can gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ and come to a place where you are honored Lord, where we hear great music, where we sing, where we hear the word proclaimed to us. Lord, bless us in this service. Bless Pastor Wes and our choir and Amanda and all of us as we worship you together today. These things we pray in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.
Amen. What a great promise for us. It is great to see you here in worship today. I want to invite you to take a moment, share a word of greeting, a word of peace with others who are here today. morning. My name is Zach Rohn, and um, some of you may know me, but many of you will be familiar with uh, the mission that I'm going to share about this morning. Um, It's a local mission, and it's one that you can be involved in very easily. Um, Royal Family Kids Camp is a camp that serves uh, Allegheny and Wyoming counties, our local camp does, and um, it, it works with abused, neglected children. Um, it's one week in July. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of background, I guess, on abuse in the, in the U.S. Um, so you can understand why this camp is so important. Um, there, there are about 3.6 million cases of child abuse, neglect, and abandonment that are reported in the U.S. Um, and that's, that's not to, to mention all the ones that don't go reported. Um, and we, they estimate that one victim dies every six hours from this kind of abuse. In 2012, Royal Family served over 6,000 kids at 160 camps in 35 states and 11 countries. That's 80,000 children since the first camp in 1985. Um, it's the nation's leading program of its kind, and I'd like to point out that it is rooted in Christ. The mission of the camp is to create life-changing moments for these kids. And the, the purpose um, is to, 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 um, to build the faith community, to mobilize it, um, to confront child abuse. Now, our local camp is celebrating its 20th year, its 20th anniversary. And it was started by John Van Wicklin 20 years ago. Um, and, and since that time, we've helped nearly 300 children um, and that's a thousand camper weeks in 20 years, um, and that's 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 pretty neat. And we think that you know the, of those 300 children that that are that are ministered to, um, it's going to affect their families and affect their children um, to come. So what does it look like? Well, a lot of these kids never have a birthday party, so we give them one. We have every kid's birthday party. We have a carnival day. Uh, where we have uh, rides and activities for them to do. They get to ride motorcycles, and um, we, we uh, have camp aunts and uncles and coaches and camp uh, grandfather and grandmother, and we take them fishing and speedboat riding and give them the types of experiences that a healthy child gets to have. Um, we try to create positive memories for them. If you'd like to get a little glimpse of that, there's a, a movie that came out last year called Camp. Um, our local camp supported the, the viewing of it in the, the Houghton Chapel last year. But if you didn't get a chance to see it, it is available on Netflix. Um, but it gives you a, a glimpse into what our camp looks like. Um, now, our camp, we, we, we take in 50 to 52 children uh, each year. 
Um, and of, for 50 to 52 children, we take 80 adult volunteers. Um, it's 50 staff members and 32 counselors. Uh, and that's a total of about 130 people for that camp week. And every single one of them needs prayer. Uh, it, it's a, an amazing experience when you see these kids um, open up this little envelope uh, at the beginning of the week. And they see a note written to them from a prayer partner telling them that I'm going to be praying for you this week and I hope you have a great time. To see the smile on their face, to see them light up, to know that somebody's thinking about them every day this week. Somebody that they don't even know. Um, and that's what I'm here to ask you about today. Um, we, we're staffed for this year. I'm not asking for donations this morning. I'm asking for prayer partners. Um, that is a way that you can get involved in, uh, missionally um, for, for this program. So your responsibilities as a prayer partner, it means that prior to camp, you'll be contacted with a name, um, a first name and probably a last initial. Last initial um, and you'll just be writing a two, three-sentence note to this individual and to tell them that you're praying for them and you hope they have a good week. And then your responsibility of the week at camp is simply to pray for them. And, and, and that's, that's all we ask. Um, so how do you sign up? How do you get involved? At the end of the service, I'll be standing in the back with a sign-up sheet. Uh, please see me after. Um, we'd love to, love to have um, this community stand behind the camp um, with prayer. Thank you very much. Thank you, Zach. And we do want to encourage you. Cindy and I have been prayer partners for a number of years. And it is one way of being connected to the... Uh, amazing ministry taking place with uh, these children. So I encourage you, before you, after you, before you go home today, stop, talk to Zach, and uh, get signed up to be a prayer partner. We have another prayer ministry that we are also uh, just about to uh, engage in, and that is the prayer for our graduates. We have done this for the last few years. Where th- th- we start tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock. It ends Tuesday evening at 6 o'clock, 36 hours of prayer for our college and high school graduates. In the prayer room, there is a, a, the wall has the names of all the graduates on it, so you can pray for them by name. And we have, uh, there are still a few times that are left in the 36 hours. You can sign up this morning right after the service in the back foyer or through the church website anytime. But it does start tomorrow morning at 6, and we, would, we really want to fill up all 36 hours to pray for our graduates and ask God's grace upon their lives. And there's information in the bulletin about that. I mentioned last week that in the fall, we're going to be doing, I'm going to be doing a series of sermons about questions that you ask, and we got uh, quite a few responses last week. We'd love to get more. The uh, three by five cards in the pew rack in front of you, the different colors, uh, you can write your questions on those. If you're ready, you can drop it in the offering plate, or there is a basket in the back uh, for you as well. We'd love to get your questions and uh, to hear, uh, basically you're, we're asking, I'd like to hear a sermon about, and write that down. So we really want your responses. We appreciate it. You can also send an email to me or to any of the staff, and we will get that into the group of the questions. Thank you for helping us with that. There's an insert in your bulletin about some upcoming events, and I particularly want to highlight Children's Church and the Sunday School staffing. We have needs in these areas. Our children are a gift of God, and it's our responsibility to help raise them in the faith, in this faith community. And that means our involvement. And I know it's a sacrifice to be involved in children's church. Uh, 
to go to work in children's church rather than being in worship. But what an investment we're making in these young lives. So I really want to encourage you to, uh, to be willing to give up a Sunday or two this summer, uh, beginning actually right now through the, through the summer, to uh, help our children, to teach them, to uh, just engage them in the faith as God calls us to do. And you see information, uh, you can contact Emily Hoffman or the church office about being involved in that. Uh, also, we are uh, about to the place of electing our new leaders for the year in a couple of weeks. Uh, the ballots are posted around. There's also a booklet in the back with pictures and some information about everyone who's on the ballot. Please take one of those with you and be in prayer about this event on May 18th and that evening about our vision meeting. There are a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin. And I do want to mention that I just found out this morning that Skeets Roth died yesterday. And we want to, some of you would know Skeets, and we want to pray for his family in this time of grief and uh, ask for God's grace upon them, as well as others who are grieving and hurting that are connected to us. And please note uh, the change in our worship schedule uh, beginning next Sunday, and uh, you see the schedule throughout the rest of the summer as we gather for worship.
For many of our college seniors, this is the last Sunday to be here before uh, moving on to the next chapter of their lives. And so we want to take a moment to uh, offer prayer for those of you who are college seniors. We're going to ask them to stand and then uh, those who might be near them to gather around them, lay hands on them, and uh, we want to pray for them. So if you're a college senior, please stand and uh, let us pray for you. We have a few in the balcony, if uh, some of you up there would go to lay hands on them. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for each senior standing before us today. They are precious to you and to us. Thank you for all the ways in which you have worked in their lives over the years of their education here. They have learned and grown. They have changed some opinions. They have solidified others. More than anything, they have encountered you and your work in their lives. And we thank you We thank you so much for the progress in the faith that each one of them has made. We thank you, Father, for your promise about the next stage of their lives. We know that as you have been with them here, you will be with them, whatever that next chapter may be, and that you will lead them and guide them. And we pray that they will know your presence in a very tangible way they will know your grace poured out on their lives. Bless them in their work and in their relationships. Bless them in the decisions that they make. In every step, may they know your spirit so near. Father, thank you for their lives. Thank you for all that you desire for them. We place them in your hands with confidence and joy because of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Our Old Testament scripture is Psalm 145. One of those antiphonal psalms that needs to be read back and forth between a reader and a congregation or between two sides of a congregation. We'll read it this morning. I'll read the, the odd verses and you read the even ones and we'll read the last stanza together and it'll appear on the screen uh, so that you can see it. Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One 
They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises, and faithful in all he does. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He he hears their cry and saves them. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we come today with a need to confess our sins to you. We have spoken harshly when a gentle word was the right response. We have broken confidence even though we were trusted with sensitive information. We have acted arrogantly despite your call to humility. We have allowed our work to drive us while ignoring the rest that you command and that we need. We have not honored others above ourselves. We have been selfish with our time, our gifts, and our resources. In your loving mercy, forgive us. And in your wondrous grace, make us more like Christ. Amen. Now shall we stand together and sing the doxology as our ushers come to receive our morning tithes and offerings.
Father, we are rich people, and we want to return to you something from what you have allowed us to have. Help us to be generous as we give. In Christ's name, amen. Please sing with me. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. These the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. to see the pain written on your face bearing the awesome weight of sin every bitter thought every evil deed crowning your blood stained brow these the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven the cross. Now the daylight flees, now ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head curtain torn into dead are raised to life finish the victory cry peace the power of the cross Christ became
This God who has gone to the cross and given us life calls us to pray. As we pray together this morning, if you'd like to come and kneel at the altar rail, I invite you to join me. Father, it is an awesome thing to ponder what you have done for us in Christ. Can't truly comprehend all that was done through the cross, all that is ours through the resurrection. All that we have been promised because Christ is alive and with you and returning. We declare today, Father, that we want all that you desire to give. And we pray that you will continue to stir our hearts with the power of the cross. And of the empty tomb. And of your gift of life. Father we come today. Knowing that you hear us when we pray. That you're involved in our lives and. You call us to pray. Father, we pray for the needs in our lives and the needs that are close to us. And we think of those who are grieving and ask for your grace and mercy to be particularly near each of them today. We pray for the family of Skeets Roth. We pray for Jim and Karen Szymanski. We pray for family of Ruth and Lyndall Hutton. We pray, Father, for all of the others connected to us. Pray, Father, for your grace upon each of them. For Steve Castor's family. Lord, there are so many with us, among us, a part of us who are grieving Some because of death, others just because of other losses in our lives. We pray for your mercy, your comfort, your peace. Father, we pray this morning for those who are wrestling with issues of health. We think today of Bev and Edna. We pray for Linda and Micah, for Bill for Crystal and Emily, and for the others that come to our minds. We pray for your healing grace in each of them. Lord, we thank you for those who have heard your call to go to other places 
than their homes to share the gospel. Pray for Wes and Dana as they prepare to go back to Kenya. Bless them as they raise their support, as they travel. And we pray for your anointing upon their ministry. Father, we pray for these girls who were abducted in Nigeria. Our heart grieves for them and their families. We pray that you will protect them. We pray that you will work for their safe release. We pray that that you will keep them from all that the evil one wants to do. We pray, Father, that you will give to their families and friends your grace. We ask, Father, that you will work miraculously in this situation that seems so dire. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We thank you that you are faithful to work in the ways that you know are best. We pray that you will fill us with confidence and courage because of who you are, because of what you've done for us in Christ, because of your love. And we offer our prayers in the name of Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Our New Testament reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even so refined by fire, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
What do you do when you're hit and run over by some sin in your life? And it happens not just once or twice, but over and over again. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? How do you think God responds to our struggle with sin, our continual struggle with sin? Maybe you haven't really thought about it all that much. But if you're like me, you have thought about it, you've pondered it, you've questioned it, you've worried about it. Because the truth of the matter is, we all wrestle with sin. None of us are perfect. And the scriptures tell us that God has pretty high standards for uh, his children. So where does that place us? What do we do? How do we deal with it? What, what is the, uh, what's the way that we might respond to it? It's not just a theoretical question. It's a real question. It's, a, in a sense, a life and death question. And when we read the scriptures, we find that God is concerned about it. And it's what I think has something to do with this passage that we have read here in First Peter. When I read the scriptures, I'm asking myself questions like, why did the author write this, these particular words to this particular group of people? Now, we know all the scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we can say, well, it's because the Holy Spirit prompted the person to write it. But I, my question is, why did the Holy Spirit prompt this person to write these particular words to this particular group of people at this particular time and in this particular way? I mean, we think of all the things that God could say to human beings. It's really a pretty small, small book. So why this? And when I read this first letter of Peter, I, I get a sense that this, the church, and he says in the first couple of verses of the letter, they are, he's writing to the church that's scattered around, and more than likely they're scattered because they're being persecuted. And he says in verse 6 that they're going through trials. They're going through some difficult trials. And I suspect he's writing to people who are being persecuted, who are struggling, and they're probably thinking, God, what are you doing to us? And there's a sense of discouragement, And some of them may feel so discouraged and so weighed down that they're saying, I'm not doing this anymore. Why should I mess with this? What's the point? Besides that, I keep falling into the same struggles all the time. And maybe that's why God is letting this happen to us. And Peter's response to the church, to the people he writes to, is not to chastise them, it's to encourage them. And he says to them, I've got a good word for you. Praise be to the, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has raised his son from the dead. And that's the point. Everything Peter writes here, every positive thing Peter says here, is about the fact that Christ has risen from the dead. He keeps coming back to that. The 20th century Scottish preacher James Stewart said that the resurrection is at the center of every Christian sermon that's ever been preached. It's at the center of of every doctrine that Christians have ever believed. It's at the heart of everything that has ever been written and it was ever written in the New Testament. Whether you're talking about the Gospels, the book of Acts, the letters, the Revelation. 
what is behind it and under it, what motivates it, is the resurrection of Christ. Everything. And Peter says, that is, that, that's everything I'm writing to you in the, in the whole rest of this letter is founded on, based on, the resurrection of Christ. As Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, it's futile. It's about Christ being raised. And he says, because Christ is raised, you have new birth, you have a living hope. And we think about hope, we tend to think about sort of the, uh, ooh, I hope this happens. Cross our fingers, we, you know, we, we wish. If you watched the Kentucky Derby yesterday, I suspect there were a whole lot of people who were hoping that their horse won. But that's not what Peter's talking about. The kind of hope he's talking about is confidence. He said, our confidence is in Christ. Because Christ is risen from the dead, he's conquered every foe, every enemy, everything that comes against him and us. He has done it all, and we have confidence that he is victorious. And the net result of that is that he says in verses 4 and 5, we have an inheritance that cannot spoil, fade, or perish. He uses words that are sort of the negative of it in order to help us understand the positive of it. And we understand things in our, in our world that spoil, fade, and perish. Something that's supposed to be in the refrigerator, you take some, take some yogurt out of the refrigerator and leave it on your counter for a couple of weeks. Or some uh, milk and see what happens to it. Some of you are cleaning out your dorm rooms and you may find some things that you've... <laughs> That's what that smell was. We know all about things that spoil. We know about things that perish. How quickly things can go up in flames. Our most precious possessions. We know about things that fade. You know, we do digital photographs now, but the old photographs began to fade after a while. And our memories begin to fade after a while. We know all about things that spoil and perish and fade. And Peter says, the inheritance that God has promised to you through the risen Christ will not do any of that. It is certain, it is sure, you can count on it, period. And I think that for people who have grown up in the Wesleyan tradition, people who have grown up in a, in a the, as followers of John Wesley, I think this is a word we need to hear once again. We need to be reminded that our inheritance is sure. Because sometimes, in an attempt to make sure people don't think, misunderstand our theology, we give off a, a vibe that our inheritance is insecure. I have to tell you, I, I was raised in that sort of environment. Always worried about doing something wrong. And, and if you did something wrong, that was it. You were done. You better hope Jesus didn't come back when that took place. You know, I mean, and, and the guilt, the anxiety, the fear about, you know, lying to my parents or mistreating my, my, my sisters. And I hope they felt the same kind of guilt about mistreating me. <laughs> and then I had to feel guilty about that, you know, right? And And... 
Just all the thoughts that go through our minds and all of that. You live in constant fear that, oh man, this is, this is more than God can handle. And especially when the sin is something we continually wrestle with and fight with. My dad, who grew up in an even stricter environment, talks about how you know, he lived with this constant fear. And, and that's not of God. That's not God's plan for us. He does not want us to live with a sense of fear and insecurity and anxiety about our eternal inheritance. He wants to live with certainty. He wants us to know that. And it seems to me that we're, we're selling God short. You think about your close relationships, parent, child, sibling, your closest friends. Spouse, how quickly are we ready to forgive them? Because we all hurt each other. In fact, we are hurt most by the people who are closest to us. And so we are continually hurting each other. If we really love people, we're ready to forgive them. And often we will forgive them even if they don't give us the contrition that we would like for them to give us. We still forgive. And if we do that, how much more God? In the passage from the Psalms we read this morning, what does it say about God? He is patient and slow to anger and compassionate and loves to forgive. And how often do we hear those words repeated again and again and again through the Scriptures? And the Scriptures tell us all the good that we can imagine in our hearts toward other people, God is infinitely more. God is infinitely more patient, infinitely more reasonable, infinitely infinitely more forgiving, infinitely more compassionate, infinitely more loving. And yet we've created this image of God where he, you know, he's waiting around and just can't wait for us to do something wrong so he can pounce on us and write us out of the will. And it's creating an atmosphere in our hearts of insecurity. I don't think that's God's plan for us. The resurrected Christ has done more than that than for us to live in insecurity and fear. But Peter also says, talks about the end of our faith. And the perseverance of our faith. And he says in verse 7 that these trials have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. And in verse 9, he says, you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And as I read this, what I hear Peter saying is, our inheritance in, in God's power is secure, but you have a role to play in it as well. We have a role of, of, of preserving our faith, of making sure that we are, we are continually committed to Christ. That our desire is Christ, our yearning is Christ, our our passion is Christ. You think about the word passion and you you think of earnestness and sincerity and seriousness. When you think about passion, you think of something that just absorbs all of your being. When I was a child, baseball was my passion. I woke up the first thing in the morning, let's get a game together. And... All day we played baseball. I mean, I was, uh, there were other kids who didn't have the same passion. And, and I, would, 
I would get on them because I wanted to keep playing. And they're like, I'm tired. No, we can play more. You know, we make up our own games. So you, if we only had five or six people, we played till you couldn't see the ball anymore. The only reason we stopped playing was to eat. And that was only because our mothers were dragging us home. I go to bed, I dream about baseball. Everything about my life was related to baseball. It was my passion. And Peter says, as followers of Jesus, he's our passion. We wake up in the morning and think about Jesus. We go to bed at night, we think about Jesus. Everything that happens during the day is about Jesus. Our relationships are about Jesus in the center of those. It's our passion. Our faith. And we're called to live in this passion for Christ. In this desire to want Christ more than we want anything else. To engage ourselves with the one who died for our sins, as we sang a few moments ago, and who raised us to new life. And to live with that kind of passion is our calling. And there is a connection between the certainty of our assurance, of our inheritance, and our passion for Christ. Now, as you listen to that, you might be thinking, talk about two opposite things. If you've been around the church for a while, you know this is one of those theological hot-button issues. And I am convinced that the answer is not either or. It's not somewhere in the middle. It's both and. Because they're both true. They're both biblical. We have an assurance in Christ. We have a responsibility about our passion for Christ. And we live to hold those two truths in tension in order to be true children of God. After the service, someone was, first service, someone was talking to me a little bit about this, and they were, they were talking. They, well, something they said triggered a thought in my mind. If you're, a, if you're a college basketball fan, you know that one of the, one of the things that they're dealing with is a, is a rule that, for lack of a better term, they're called one and done. The NBA, the National Basketball Association, the professionals, they won't let someone come right out of high school into the professional ranks. You have to wait a year, and so a lot of these Better players are going to college for one year. They have no intention of staying longer. They play one year and then they jump to the professional leagues. And they call that one and done. And and as we were talking, it struck me that that's one of the things that we wrestle with here. See, our, our natural tendency is to go to one extreme or the other. Partly because we're more concerned about protecting our our theological position than we are with really trying to live for Christ. And so we get wrapped up in our theology, and and if we're not careful, it can take us to extremes. And we have one and done on both ends. On the one hand, you have people who will talk about uh, one and done in the sense of, I prayed to receive Christ, and now I'm done. I'm in. doesn't matter what I do from this point. And on the other extreme, you have people who are one and done and say, if I commit one sin, I'm done. Christ gives up on me. And i got to start this thing all over again. And they're both wrong. They're both unbiblical. Because the truth of the matter is, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it's not about a, a, a one-time, momentary, I'm in and that's it. He, how many times does Jesus talk about, if you're going to be his disciple, you follow him. Take up your cross and follow him. Surrender your life to him. Give all that you are to him. It is a journey. 
in which we engage ourselves and desire passionately for Christ. And on the other side of it, we are not perfect. We, are all, we all struggle. And God is bigger. And God is always ready and willing to forgive us than we even are to forgive ourselves. And even if we, and even in our tradition, if you believe you could be a believer and at some point turn away from God, it is a long, long process of doing that. And God never gives up on us. Paul writes, I will never, I will never leave you nor forsake you, God says. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. As the poet says, the hound of heaven pursues us to the end of our days. It is so much bigger than our theological positions. And if we are willing to be content with the extremes, what ends up happening is, is our focus is on us instead of on Christ. Our focus is on a theological perspective instead of on Christ. And the sad thing is, we don't know what we're missing because it's in Christ that we find the joy that Peter writes about in this passage. Over and over and over again, Peter writes three or four times, he talks about rejoicing, he talks about joy. And that's, that comes from being connected to Christ and knowing that our eternal inheritance is secure because of Christ. And that we have this passionate desire for Christ. And when you put those t- the, together and we live in this tension that sometimes is difficult for us, that's where we find the joy. Because our focus is Christ. Dallas Willard used to say, he'd tell people that there is no being in the universe that's more interested in joy and more joyful than God is. He said, so is Christ. You look at, look at all the people flocking to Jesus, especially the children who flock to Jesus. Children are smart. They don't flock to people who are mean and nasty and don't want them. They flock to people who are open-armed. Joyful, loving. God's design for us is joy. But joy doesn't come in one extreme or the other. It comes in the tension of both truths and the focus on Christ. You know, as we wrestle with trying to think through this, and I don't know what you're, where you come at from your, your position, but... I read something years ago that helped me. It helped me to see with a little more clarity. And I, and I don't remember where I read it or who said it, but it stuck with me. It, it's an image, a metaphor that I think is profound. It's odd, but it's profound. The person said, so let's pretend that, that the Christian life is like riding in a pickup truck. And Jesus is driving the pickup truck. I'll let you put that into your theological ideas, however you want. (laughs) Jesus is driving the pickup truck, and all who are believers are riding in the back of the pickup truck. And some people think the tailgate is down, and it's not that hard to fall out. And other people think the tailgate is up, and it's virtually impossible to fall out. But the point is not how close to the tailgate can we be and still stay in the truck. The point is how close to the cab where Jesus is 
can we live? Because that's where we have life and joy. This is our passion, to be as close to Jesus as possible. And when our passion is to be close to Jesus, the rest of it takes care of itself. It's in being close to Jesus. It's in that passion. It's in the celebrating our inheritance that we find genuine, true joy. This week I read about years ago when translators were working with the uh, language of the Alaskan people. There were, as is always the case, there were words that, in, that weren't, they didn't have in English. And uh, there were words in English that they didn't have in their language. And you know, if you've done anything with languages, you know that there are always gaps. That's one of the beauty of, beauties of language. But one of the words that they did not, that they couldn't find in their language, that they didn't have was the word Joy. And they, they thought and thought and they searched and searched trying to figure out how they would translate the scriptures when the word joy was needed. And, and all of a sudden, as they began to think, well, what are joyous moments? They, they remembered how many times they had seen the most, what they would consider the most joyous moment of the day for every, seemed like every family. It was when the sled dogs came in for all the writing and work they'd done all day and they came home for supper. And as the sled dogs came in, to the house, in by the house, all the children would run outside of the house because they loved the dogs. And the dogs loved them. And they would hug each other and jump all over each other. And, and they would play together. And it was the moment children were giggling. And it was the moment that just, it was one of those moments of joy. And so when they translated the scriptures, they had that picture in mind. And when what they translated was retranslated back to English, there was a passage that said, when the disciples saw Jesus, they wagged their tails. (laughs) I think God wants a whole bunch of people who are so enamored with him, so passionate about him, who have felt so secure about their eternal inheritance that we wag our tails. And we live in the joy that is ours in Christ, who is dead and is raised to life. Father, we pray that you will give us that joy Help us to have a passion for you. Fill us with a confidence in your promises. And make us people who exude the joy of your spirit in the risen Christ. We ask this through Jesus. Amen.
Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.